Amen. Y'all can have a seat. Well, good morning, New City Church. It's great to be back up here with you. My name is AJ Farthing. I'm on staff here at New City. Uh, if this is your first time with us or your first time in a while, or if you're joining on, us online, I just want to say welcome. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, we're glad that you're here. And so I'm excited to wrap up this weekend our, book of, uh, our series through the book of Titus. And so we're going to be in Titus 3 this morning. And so over the past four weeks, we've looked and seen what makes a church that lasts. We've seen how the church is to be led by elders, men above reproach, and how the gospel speaks over everything and to all of us, because men were to be steadfast and self-controlled. To my sisters, you're to be self-controlled and reverent. And we saw last week how we're all, over the past three weeks, all to be teaching the word and modeling the word to one another. Here at New City, we see this play out in all of our values here as having authentic relationships and intentional discipleship. Both of us, both of which urge us to be in community, which we want all of us to be in. And so we as a community, we want to urge one another to leverage our work for gospel work, for gospel purposes and making God known in every area of our life. And so I'm excited to see how Paul ends his letter to his child in the faith, Titus. I'm excited to see how we are to live our lives in response to all that we've heard, not just today, but over the past few weeks. And so as I said, our text this morning is going to be in Titus chapter 3, and we're going to spend our time looking at verses uh, 4 through 15. And so before we go any further, I just want to read God's word over us. And so let's read, starting in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works." so as to help in cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. I'm excited to dive into this because this text covers a lot of what Paul's talked about through the last two chapters of Titus. And it's going to drive home a lot of what we've talked about over the last few weeks. And so we're going to see how Paul ties it all together and the implications that it had for the church in Crete but also for us here today. And so before we, though, jump into our text, I just want you to take a moment and think of something that you've just been devoted to. Like, what is it something? It can be as simple as a sports team or a hobby, uh, but it could be even more serious. Uh, our political beliefs, uh, our, our, a person, it can be one of these type of things. And so the main idea I want you to think of right here, though, is somebody you're bought into. I like to fish. I like to say like hook, line, and sinker. You're like bought in. You're ready to go. For me, I'm an NC State fan, like ride or die. Go pack. 
I love it. Sorry, USF fans. Usually I'm a sad NC State fan, but Thursday night I was a little excited. That's all I'm going to say about it. That's it. We're done. All right. But go pack. I love it. I don't know every player. I don't know everything going on, but I love the Wolf Pack. If it comes up in conversation, I can guarantee you who the best team, I'll at least say in the ACC is, all right, it's the NC State Wolf Pack. I mean, there's not much competition in the ACC, but I'm not going to go any further. Don't worry. But here's an example of how devoted I am to the Wolf Pack. Every year when March Madness comes along, I fill out two brackets, and one always has the NC State Wolf Pack winning the national championship. Like first team you fill out all the way down. That's me. I have that going on. Now, it's been 38 years. I know. But I believe, all right, I still believe I, I'm a devoted fan so much that I'm going to root for my alma mater no matter who they're playing. I'm going to root against our rival. I'm going to cheer for whoever they're playing. I'm not even going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I'm not even going to say their name up here. All right, but they lost this weekend. I'm just saying, but whatever. Here we go. All right, but, but devotion, though, it's not something easily changed. We have deep roots. It's what we're devoted to, man, what we're willing to sacrifice for. And you're like, well, I don't know what I'm devoted to. Why? You know, there's a few like litmus tests and not all these ring true in every scenario. But one of the ways that we can learn is what do we spend our time the most doing outside of work? And maybe you're devoted to your work and you're like, well, that rings true there. What do you spend your money on? If you look at your bank account, what's the money? Where are you spending your money? Where, what brings you just immense joy in your life? These are questions that help us begin to figure out what we're devoted to, because this is something that our passage hits on today. And so we begin to ask the question, is there something that's worthy of all of our devotion? Is there something worthy of giving our whole life to? And so our passage shows us that there is something worthy, not just of our devotion, but our whole life. And so we see in these verses that we read just a few moments ago that Paul is reminding Titus to remember what is most important. And so verse 8 is going to be a central point for us today here. And But we're going to walk through all this passage because it's just rich. And so it's going to help us understand what's going on. And so in verse 8, Paul says this, that the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And so what we see, looking at verse 8, is that there's a call to insist on everything that was just said. And so we're going to look at that in just a moment in 4 through 7. And so, but there's this, here's like, I'm going to go ahead and give it to you. There's this charge in 4 through 7, and he's insisting on, you need to insist on being centered on the gospel. You need to insist on Christ being preeminent or first in our lives. And it having its right, when it has its right place, then we'll be able to be devoted to what verse 8 calls us to, and that is the good works. And so our main point today is grown out of verse 8 and really this whole passage. And so here it is, that we are to devote our lives to gospel work. Last week, we saw how we're to leverage our lives for gospel work. And so I'm just building off what Pastor Eric did, like copy and paste. It was good last week. I hope it's good this week. Okay. But we want to see, man, we want to build, uh, continue to build with one another the emphasis on how the gospel what we're about to just really dive into changes everything. And so this passage is going to build on itself and give us three points that we're going to like follow through our follow during our time together with the main idea of devoting our lives to gospel work. And so our three points today are Christ is worthy of our devotion. 
our devotion is to be lived out in community, and then our devotion is a witness to the world. And so we're going to walk through these, and our passage is going to help us see how all this plays out. But I do want to remind you, we're picking up four verses into a chapter. We've already gone through two, and, two chapters and a few verses. And so I just want to remind you, because context does matter when we read Scripture, that Paul is instructing Titus to remind the church to be submissive to authority and ready for every good work. He outlines for them what it looks like to do just that and being gentle and showing perfect courtesy to all, not quarreling or speaking evil of someone. He reminds us that if we are in Christ, we were once foolish, disobedient, easily led astray by different passions and constantly putting ourselves first. Man, what a reminder. But we jump into verse 4 where Paul takes this beautiful turn. And I love these type of turns in Scripture. And so we get to see that Christ is worthy of our devotion. So let's look at verses 4 through 7 again together. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Whew, this thing is rich, all right, with gospel truth. And it's one where you can clearly see, I believe we can clearly see the love that God has for us. And so we're gonna spend some time here in the beginning just unpacking all of these verses right here because this is a foundational truth of what we believe as Christians. And it gives us the why behind the what uh, we're talking about here today. As we think about devoting our lives to gospel work, we need to understand why. And so it's because I believe it's really easy to read a passage like this, uh, like ours this morning, and come to the conclusion that we're to simply do good works. We're just to devote ourselves to good works. I mean, they, the passage tells us it's excellent and profitable. I'm like, all right, let's just do some good. Who doesn't want to do that? That's easy. But I'm here to tell you we can't follow this application. This is, it's not the way things go because I hate to break it to you. Our good works aren't good enough. Even worse, we aren't inherently good. We're a bunch of foolish, disobedient, uncontrolled, and selfish people. I didn't say that, though, just to be clear. That was the Apostle Paul speaking for the Lord. That wasn't me. But in all of that, though, it rings true because it is from Scripture. And so if we think about it, though, I, I, we could probably see this playing out in our own lives. I, I can at least see it in mine. For me, the clearest place that I see that is at the home or in the home as a father and as a husband. Now, don't mishear me. I love my family. Uh, I, if I'm devoted to something, I'm devoted to my family. I love them. I will do anything for them. But I'll be honest. I feel like this is a safe space. All right. I, I sometimes miss uh, things that my wife says or asks me to do. It's not that I just don't hear them. Sometimes I forget to do them. It's a safe space, right? I sometimes am impatient with our sweet sinners. I mean, boys. I mean, we got, we got two boys, they're sweet, uh, but they're sinners. But I, I know that I'm impatient with them. I can sometimes speak harshly to them. And I know this just isn't, though, like a, oh, I did this like once, you know, six years ago in our marriage, or once, you know, for each of them as they've been alive. No, it's a daily thing where I fight and I realize my imperfection, that I'm not good enough. 
But this is where the beauty of our passage and the gospel comes into play. And this is where my family can place its hope in, not in me. God is the one who cares and provides and uses me to show his love to them. He's the perfect father. And so as we walk through our passage, let's see how Christ is worthy of our devotion. And so let's start in verse four. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. I know we got a big passage today, but we're just going to hone in on this. And if we spent our time just on this, we would have a time well spent. Because I love how sweet the picture of God and his love towards us is. Because when we look back at verse 4, we see that God, the creator and sustainer of all things, came and appeared not as a God seeking judgment for our sin, but instead appeared as Jesus, fully God, fully man, with his goodness and loving kindness. Jesus came down from his throne in heaven, not to bring judgment, but scripture tells us to seek and to save the lost, which we all are without him. The way I sometimes read this, though, is like, okay, he saved me. We can look at this. Uh, He saved me from my past sin. He saved us. That's like past tense. But what's beautiful about this is that it's more complete than that. Scripture, and we begin to bring it all in, it shows us with other truths in mind that he saved us, brings the connotation of a totality of saving. He saved us from our past sins, our present sins, our future sins. He saved us to where those who trust in light, trust in Christ, sin no longer has a hold on us. We have been set free by the blood of Christ and the empty tomb. Amen? Amen. So the question then we got to ask is like, why did he save us? I'm glad you asked, all right? Because I'm quick, I'm quick to think, well, he saved me because I'm good. I got something to bring to the table. I can make things right for the kingdom. But this wasn't, we didn't read this this morning, but verse three tells us that we're foolish. And if I begin thinking like that, I feel like I'm living out verse three instead of verses four through seven again and just being foolish. So let's look one more time, four through seven. We're gonna keep reading this because it's just so rich. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Man, I love this. I love it. When we look at the second half of verse five, we see that Christ saved us according to his own mercy. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 tells us that God, who is rich in mercy, and because of the great love that he has for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, Ephesians tells us. And so we look back at verse 5 of our passage here today, and it's not by works done by us in righteousness. Even our best is like filthy rags, Scripture tells us in Isaiah 64, 6. Even on our best days, We could not earn our salvation. And so this may be disheartening to you. And you're like, AJ, I thought this was going to be good. This is really sad. And I'm like, I get it. But for me, this idea is a sweet gift. Because if I can earn my salvation, if I can work hard enough to get it, it also means I can lose it. But praise God, that isn't the case. Because what we see is in Romans 6, 23, it tells us, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. That is what our sin our disobedience, or simply our just reality that we're not perfect, that's what it earns us. Not just physical death, but a forever separation from God. 
But y'all, this is, here it is. This is where I begin to just like lean in and I just get excited. Because what I see is the second half of Romans 6, 23, where it says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In our... Oh man, I got so excited. I can mess that up. My bad. Woo. I'm just like, man, I got to get the word of God right. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Y'all, when he saved us, he went all in. He paid for every sin we would ever commit and said we are no longer to be slaves to sin, but we are children of the most high God. We now become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, all because we've been justified by his grace and work done on the cross. We have been washed and renewed by the Holy Spirit if we are in Christ. This is good news. I'm a, whew, man, y'all, I'm about to just jump out right here. But this is why I love, man, I love scripture. And what we kind of begin to see here is this idea, man, we've been washed and renewed by the Holy Spirit. Because this is why I love baptism. We're going to be having that next weekend because it's such a beautiful picture of salvation. Baptism is simply this outward symbol of the inward change that happens through the washing and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Baptism isn't necessary for salvation. Jesus is. Baptism is done as an act of obedience and a public declaration of your faith in what we see in verse 5. Y'all, I'm like ready to go. We got a lot more to go, so I'm going to... I'm going to take a minute, and I'm going to tell y'all a story from one of my, from one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis. Uh, you're like, man, which books he got? Chronicles of Narnia. You didn't see that coming, did you? Uh, but man, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. There's this beautiful story uh, about this you know, snot-nosed, arrogant kid named Eustace. Uh, and his arrogance got him turned into a dragon. So it's all make-believe, don't worry. I was like, what is this guy reading? Uh, but after much learning, uh, Eustace, about himself... Uh, he begins to surrender to Aslan. Aslan's the lion from the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He's the creator, sustainer, uh, the ruler over Narnia. But Aslan comes and he takes him to this pool. And Eustace knows immediately that, man, this, this water, man, this can help me. This can help me not be a dragon anymore. But before entering it, though, Aslan tells him, hey, you need to take your dragon skin off. And as hard as Eustace tries... He just is peeling it and peeling it, and he's going, and he just couldn't get it off. And he just looks at Aslan and goes, what do I do? And Aslan looks at him and says, I must be the one to take it off. I must do it. Now, as I was reading this, I was like, man, having a lion peel your skin off, that does not sound fun, um, just from where I'm standing. And Eustace affirmed that when Aslan did this. But it, as it was happening, though, this like, weird thing began to shift for Eustace. It hurt incredibly. But then there was joy that began to enter in because he was returning to who he was, who he was meant to be. He was being cleansed from his dragon skin and all that arrogance and that sin, and he was able to bathe in these renewing waters. And it was sweet, and it stung, but then it was refreshing. Y'all, this is a beautiful picture of how things take place for those who place their trust in Christ. As hard as we may try to rid ourselves of sin, there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves clean. Nothing, that is, except what we see in verse 5. The washing and re regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit based on the finished work of Christ. It is Christ's work that washes our crimson stain as white as snow. And if I could sing, I'd bust out in song right now but that's not my forte. 
But what I see is baptism is the symbol of all this happening. It's this beautiful picture because there's nothing special about the water. When we baptize next weekend, there, it'll be city tap water. Nothing's wrong with city tap water, but it's just city tap water. But the symbol is powerful. Romans 6, 4 tells us that we were buried with Christ so that we can walk in newness of life. What a symbol. When we see our brother or sister in Christ go down in the water and come back up, we get to see this beautiful picture and this celebration of what they have experienced and what they're proclaiming now through baptism. And so when all of this, I know you're like, in all this, it brings us back to our first point. Christ is worthy of our devotion. Because there's one thing, only one thing that I found that is worthy to surrender all things to, and that is Christ. He is the one who saved me according to his own mercy. He is the one who took the punishment for all my sin and wrongdoing. He is the one who lived the life I was supposed to live and went and died the brutal death I was supposed to die. He didn't stop there, but he defeated sin and death so that no longer I have to fear it or be bound by it, but I am free to live as he created me to live, as a worshiper of him. And oh no, oh yes, sorry, man, I get to spend forever with him. It's a beautiful thing that it just doesn't stop. It continues and it keeps going and we're forever with him because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And so Jesus is the one who is worthy of our devotion. Everything else in this life is guaranteed to fail you. Everything but Christ. God never fails. He never loses. He never forgets or breaks a promise. He alone is worthy of all praise and glory forever and ever. And I could stop here and we would be good for the day. But we got more to go. All right. We're going to keep going through because I think this passage just builds on itself. And so we've seen kind of the why. Why do we devote our lives to Christ? Because he's worthy. And so we devote our lives now to gospel work. And we see through this passage our second point, And that is our devotion is to be lived out in community. And there's a lot wrapped up in this point. So I'm going to give us a few sub points to help us navigate our way through this text. So community is God's design is what we're going to see. We're also going to see the importance of unity. And then this last one, you're going to laugh at church discipline as an act of love. And we're going to unpack all of these things. And so we're going to go to verse eight now, though. And we've read it a few times, but let's read it again. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And so we begin to see this community aspect playing out as Paul instructs Titus to insist on these things. Those things that what was just said, what we just talked about for a few minutes, the gospel. The church in Crete must take what was just said, the gospel, what verse four through seven said, to heart if they're going to live out verse 8, if they're going to be devoted to good works. Because they'd be unable to love as they were called to love if they got this backwards, if they didn't comprehend the truth of the trustworthy saying that Paul told them. And neither will we if we miss what we just talked about in verses 4 through 7. We must have a low view of ourselves. Our kids team is learning a verse right now, John 3.30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Man, I love that. That's a life verse for me because I'm all the time I'm wanting to make much of myself. But because if we get this backwards, the results of our good works is not gospel proclamation. It's good works for ourselves so that we can be thought of well. 
It's not for others. Because then we'd be in no place to offer the grace that is offered through these good works, that's offered through the works of Christ because we've never experienced it ourselves. But when we have experienced the grace of God in our lives and have surrendered to Him, we need others to come around us and insist that we live this out. We need one another to insist that we are devoted to sharing the love of God and doing good works. This is why as we look and see, our devotion is to be lived out in community because community is God's design. Our natural bent, though, I'm convinced this doesn't operate this way. And in a few minutes, we're going to unpack um, when we're out of the community, out of this design, there's scary results. And so we naturally, as we saw in verse 3, though, are slaves to various passions. We're passing our days living for ourselves. And so this is the importance why we emphasize community we have over the past few weeks here at New City. This is why here we, at New City, we strive to make sure everyone who is connected to the church is also connected to community with other believers. We believe it so much, and I've already mentioned this once, it's two of our three values is directly on community. We desire for authentic relationships and intentional discipleship to be happening none of which can be done alone. And so we want to see everyone connected to three to five people, who they are pouring into and having them pour into you as well. We desire this and pray for this. Because Paul knew, and what we see in this verse is that it's easy to slip up into meaningless things. It just is. He tells them to be careful in verse eight. Because I think it's a tried and true tactic of the enemy. Our, our enemy, Satan, who wants to steal, kill, and destroy us. The best way for him to do that is for us to be unfocused or to be isolated. Because when we're unfocused or if we're focused on the wrong things or isolate ourselves from community, Satan has a much better odd, has much better odds on getting us. He has that. If we're unfocused or isolated, this is, that's where he loves us to be. But when we're in community, we have brothers and sisters there warriors of the faith to protect us from the attacks of the enemy. And when they do come, they're there to lend aid as well. They're quick to be, they're quick to point us back to God's word, back to the gospel, back to the one who is our refuge and our fortress. He is himself a refuge for the weary and the weak. He's where we get to run to and community points us back there. And so then we insist We have to insist, as verse 8 shows us, for one another to have sound doctrine, to practice right living and live out what we've been seeing and learning through the whole book of Titus because we want to be a church that lasts. We want you to see through others how communities to be lived out. We want you to be teaching the Word, modeling the Word. That's why we just continue to press in on this. Because when we begin to do what is profitable and good in God's eyes, we truly become a church that lasts. And we can sustain New City. We can sustain anything the enemy in the world throws at us because we devote ourselves to the things that have eternal significance. We don't worry about these other things. We worry about the things like sharing the gospel, about making disciples, about mobilizing missionaries, about multiplying churches. We're focused on the things that God has called us to be focused on. But what we avoid, though, is those things we see in verses 9 and 10. And so let's look there together. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. 
As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Some light reading for us this Sunday morning. But what we see in verses 9 and 10, even 11, what we see is worthless and unprofitable are foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. And so this takes us back to what Paul was talking about in chapter 1 and even in chapter 2 a little bit. But this idea of false teachers, these are the ones who are taking the things of insignificance and putting them in the place of importance, the place, place that is reserved for Christ and the gospel. We saw in chapter 1 how these people were constantly just empty talkers, deceivers, using God's word for their own gain. And all of this, though, I hope you're seeing that what our focus is to be on is on Christ and what Christ has done. Because what, what was happening in the early church was these empty talkers, these deceivers, these false teachers. What we began to see happening, um, uh, history tells us that they were just adding to Scripture. Man, they were adding to the works of Christ and debating theological minutia. And this didn't serve anyone except to distract from the gospel and whatever they wanted to focus on. And so I, the question, though, is do, do questions about the law matter? Do questions about Scripture matter? Of course. Of course they do. And we need to properly understand what God's Word says. Should we quarrel, though, and cause division as we talk about Scripture? Absolutely not. By no means, we, we get to work out all of these things, these questions that we have, we get to work them out with fear and humility, discernment and wisdom. Praise God for wise men and women in the church. We work these things out in community, and then we trust the Lord because we're infallible and we're imperfect. But we work these out because this is where I see the beauty of our devotion being lived out in community. And it brings us to that second step of just unity. It brings it front and center. The beauty of the community is that we have brothers and sisters in our lives to make sure that we're focused on what God calls us to, that we're unified around the gospel. Because it's easy for us to think that we are passionate. Um, what we're passionate about should be our priority. It's easy for that. I feel that. I'm like, man, I love this. Go Wolfpack. That's our priority. But that would just throw us all off whack. That would be foolish. But what we see here is that we have community around us. We have scripture to guide us and to keep us focused on the weighty matters. Because I see, as you read through the Gospels, the, the four books of the new, first four books of the New Testament, you see Jesus calling out the Pharisees. You see them calling them out because they weren't focused on the weighty matters. They were focused on all this other stuff and drawing attention to themselves. And so they weren't building up the kingdom of God, they were building up themselves. And so community is vital as it relates to us being devoted to Christ because as we see in this passage, we're, as we begin to isolate or become unfocused or what I like to sometimes call an echo chamber, we're just hearing the same things about we get yes people around us and nobody's there to like push back. We see things begin to play out negatively. And so let's look at verses 10 and 11 and see how it plays out. Because as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. What we see here is someone's gotten their priorities out of whack. 
they're beginning to stir up division in the church instead of building unity as Scripture calls us to. Unity is what Jesus prayed for, for us to be unified around Him and His Word, not to stir up division. Community that is gospel-centered is consistently, though, speaking the truth in love. It means we're correcting one another. We have to be careful and correct one another and make sure that we're all living out what Colossians 1.18 says is preeminent. That's what our focus is to be on, and that is Christ. Christ is where our focus is to be held. I, I love 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, where it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. What we begin to, what we begin to see is that God has given us, in one sense, His Word, to make sure that we are teaching, correcting, and reproofing one another to righteousness. That's how we stay unified on the gospel, is we continue just to like slightly nudge people as they begin to wander off just a little bit, we nudge them back onto the path of righteousness. It's, it's beautiful. Because when we begin to stir disunity, though, we find ourselves outside the will of God. Disagreements, I believe, don't have to tear us down. It doesn't have to divide the church. But I believe disagreements sometimes actually breed unity because it causes us to really think about what is our priority? What's the focus? What's the goal? It's Christ. It's seeing the gospel go forth. It's seeing our lives devoted to gospel work. That's the goal. And so we can disagree about things. There's beauty in that. I love the phrase, uh, man, we strive for unity, not uniformity. We don't want everybody to be exactly the same. But we do want everybody to be centered and unified around Christ. That's why the gospel's for all people. You just, you pick something that's different. You pick NC State and their much lower rival. It's for both of them, okay? It's for Democrats and Republicans. It, you pick a divisive issue. There, and you can have a right stand on either side. But when we allow that to become the priority and what we're putting all of our devotion into, we've begun to be out of line because we're now not centered and focused on gospel work. We're focused on something else. And so we do want to take stands and correct and reproof, but we do it in a way that unifies rooted in God's word. Because when we stray from God's word, we quickly find ourselves on unstable ground. When we find ourselves devoted to something secondary more than we are to Christ, we need to stop and repent. Because that's dangerous territory we find ourselves in. But I praise God for community because it helps us stay on the solid ground. It helps us repent. It helps us remain unified around the gospel. Because what we see in this passage is church discipline playing out to its unfortunate end. Because let's look at verses 10 and 11 together, because this is important. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. And so this is going to sound weird, and I said this earlier. I think church discipline is an act of love. Before you think I'm crazy, though, let me explain. The goal of church discipline is to see the person repent and return to walking a life devoted to Christ and gospel work. That's the goal of church discipline. Now, when you hear me say church discipline, 
you're probably thinking, oh man, there's about to be words like excommunication. If you've learned anything about church history, we've gotten that wrong a little bit. Um, don't look that up too much because it's like, what has the church done there? If you think, all right, how do we practice this at New City? We bring people up on stage. We throw hymnals at you. That's not the way it works here. I promise. We don't even have hymnals. Um, but I can get some, but we're not going to do it that way. Okay? Because church discipline is an act of love. There's a lot of misguided thoughts around church discipline. But I actually, believe it or not, see small aspects of church discipline playing out daily here at New City Church. When we see a brother and sister in Christ correct one another, we see the beauty of this aspect of church discipline being played out. We're helping one another be careful and devote ourselves to good works. When we see one another begin to stray off the path, we gently and lovingly correct. And I love that. Hebrews 3 talks about this, where we're supposed to take care, lest there be any of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We're to take care. We're to be careful. We're to be devoted to good works and to one another. And so we as a church, Lord, we as a church get to see this playing out in response to the gospel. This is the importance of community and why God's given it to us. Because what we see in verses 10 and 11 is heartbreaking. We see someone, when you see someone warped by sin, it is tragic. It's, it's just heartbreaking when you begin to see this happen. But we see sometimes that the person is unwilling to repent and they condemn themselves. What we see playing out is what Jesus talked about in Matthew 18, this idea of church discipline, where it has kind of three levels. You go to your brother or your sister one-on-one. And then you bring a few more people around it. And then you bring it to the church. And if they're still unwilling to repent and follow follow the counsel of the church and those around them, then we are to treat that person as one who does not know Christ. Now, that's tragic. It's heartbreaking. But I want to remind you that this does not say that we forget about them. We continue to pray for them. We continue to share the gospel with them. But realize there's someone who rejects it at this time. And so I still pray for those that I've seen walk away from the faith. I I pray because I know God's able to transform and change. I've seen it done before, and I know he's still in the business of changing people because he's changing me. And right now, one of my prayers is that everyone at New City is connected to community. I pray each of us have authentic and deep relationships in our lives. That we move past kind of the surface things and really know one another. And that we see intentional discipleship happening where the word of God is being taught and modeled to one another. And so as we see these two play out, the natural working then is to see our third value kind of come into play, and that's missional urgency. We want others to experience this community and live in the life-changing news that we hold. And so this leads us to our final point today, and that is our devotion is a witness to the watching world. How we live our lives in a devotion to gospel work, will be seen and will affect others. Jesus tells us that in how we love other people, how we love one another, people will know we are his disciples. Because how we use our time, our talent, and our treasure speaks to those watching us. We see, people are going to see that something's different. Verses 14 through 15 say this, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help in cases of urgent need, and not be unfruitful, 
All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Verse 14 shows us that we're to devote ourselves to good works. When we will be helping those in need, we'll be fruitful. We will see people restored from brokenness. But not just restored, but sent back out into the brokenness with the gospel, for the sake of the gospel. When we're devoted to Christ and gospel work, things just look different. We send people to the ends of the earth and make God's name known. We support other churches and organizations. Instead of keeping all of our money here for New City, we send it out. Because we're charged not with just holding the good news to ourselves, but, in, but sending it and sharing that with others. In our devotion to Christ, we're to make Him known through our actions and share the good news of Jesus. As a church and as followers of Christ, we're to be devoted to gospel work, caring for those in need, caring for those on the mission field, and being hospitable to others, what this, these passages show us. And so we here at New City, we desire, man, we desire to bear fruit by God's standards, not the world's. You may hear us say that we measure our success not by our seating capacity, but by our sending capacity. We partner with missionaries who are out there planting churches and we pray for them. We partner with campus ministries at USF because we want to see people respond and Jesus change lives and reach the world. Just this past week, 14 students gave their lives to Christ at USF. Y'all, God is on the move. And so this letter from Paul to Titus ends and shows us that Titus wasn't meant to stay in Crete. He was there to raise up leaders, equip the church, and fight against false teachers. The same is true for us. We're not meant to stay in our Christian bubbles but to be sent out into the world. This is why I love what we say at the end of all of our services. New City Church, you were sent out. Our desire is to see everyone who calls New City home to have a sense of missional urgency, letting our devotion to gospel work drive us to share the gospel with others. And so we are sent out ready to be devoted to good works, not to earn our salvation, but instead responding to it. Realizing our greatest need was met through Jesus and desire for that to be true of others as well. So let us go knowing that the grace God has given us is sufficient. It is with grace that Paul started this letter. And it also brings it all to a close. And so I say as Paul did, let grace be with us all. Let's pray. God, your grace is sufficient. It's sweet, and it's one of these things that we just get to rest in, knowing that we are saved by grace through faith, not of our own works, but because of what you have done, Jesus. And let us, let us remember that. Let it be a response to you, God, and what you have done for us, because, God, you're worthy. And so let us devote our lives to you. See your name that we pray. Amen.